We are in the next section, chapter 13, verse 1 through 14, verse 35. And this Israel turns away, blessing still comes. In this section, Jesus continues to heal the sick and teach on the kingdom of Yahweh. But once again, we talked about how hostility against Jesus is going to begin to increase and increase and increase until it brings his death. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were some present on that occasion who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. He answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 who were killed when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Pilate had basically, we'll talk about Pilate a lot more when we get to the crucifixion. We'll kind of go back into his character and his mode of operation. But Pilate wasn't a very good guy. He was anti-Semitic and he basically was notorious for killing people or intentionally angering them. We don't have any record in any historical document of this particular occasion where he killed a bunch of people and the way that it's described here. However, we have plenty of records of him doing things similar to it, that this isn't like, oh my gosh, the Bible made this up about him. No, 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 no. It's very clear that he was a sadistic person. A bunch of these people were killed, and then there was a tower that fell down. We have no real record of this either, and killed a bunch of people. And Jesus making the point of, you have heard it said, and it's probably going through your 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 news medias, whatever that looked like in the ancient world, that these people died because they were somehow some horrible sinners that God was judging by killing them. Because remember, that was the common way of thinking things. If you're healthy, then you're with God and God is blessing you and God is favorable towards you. If you're not healthy, then you've sinned and God is cursing you. And Jesus is basically, no, that theology is bunk. That has nothing to do with anything. Yes, sometimes people die because of their sins, but sometimes people just, it's a fallen world, and bad things happen. But he uses it as a te- teaching opportunity and saying, however, if you don't repent and you keep going the way that you will, you will perish, but not perish in a physical sense, but in an eternal sense. The question is not, why are these people physically dying? The question is, why or why not are you going to not spiritually perish? And the answer is that you must repent. That's not the physical life and why you end your physical life has nothing to do with sin. It has everything to do with sin on what happens to you in your spiritual life. And this is what Christ is talking about. He's pointing them towards the spiritual and getting them to focus on that more than anything else. Verse 6, Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the worker who tended the vineyard, For three years now I have come looking for the fruit on this fig tree, and each time I inspect it, I find none. Cut it down. Why should it continue to deplete the soil? But the workers answered him, Sir, leave it alone this year too, until I dig around it and put fertilizer on it. Then, if it bears fruit next year, very well, but if not, you can cut it down. Now, this is a warning. And in the, in the framework of do not 
be concerned with why people are physically dying, con- connected to sin, but be concerned with whether you're going to spiritually or die or not, connected to sin. He's now turning to Israel, and he tells this parable. The fig tree was the, um, the, the national tree of Israel. That, we, there are three major trees that represented Israel, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vineyard, or the grapevine. It's not technically a tree, but it's a grapevine. Those things were characteristic of Israel and represented them. And fig trees were often used in their political emblems. Because remember, they're not allowed to have any graven images. They're not allowed to have any graven images of any animals or humans or angels or anything like that. So they often use plants or geometric shapes for their their, um, political emblems and that kind of stuff. So the fig tree was that. So the idea is that Israel is the fig tree, and Israel hasn't been producing fruit. They're not spiritually connected to Christ. Sorry. They're not spiritually connected to Yahweh. Therefore, they cannot produce fruit. So Jesus, as Yahweh's representative, or as his caretaker of the vineyard, as some parables are going to show him as, he comes and sees the tree and says, this tree is not bare fruit for so long. It should be cut down. It's robbing other trees, other, the Gentiles, of their good soil. And so I'm going to cut it down. But the servants beg for one more year. The caretaker agrees and says, you have one more year. If you don't produce fruit one more year, then you're done. Now, I wouldn't take this one more year literally. It's just the idea is I'm going to give you a little bit more time, Israel, to accept me and respond in faith and begin to produce fruit. However, if you don't, then the fig tree is going to be cursed. And we're going to see that later because they won't turn back to Christ. So this is a warning. Every Israelite would have understood what he was saying. They would have, had, they would have immediately, it would be like saying, this bald eagle okay, has no life in it and the feathers are all falling out and it should just be shot and put out of its misery. And everybody's like, no, give it another year and maybe it'll come back to life. If you said something like that, everybody would know that you're talking about America. They'd be so obvious. And so this is how they would have understood it. Now, whether they would have liked him or not for that, just like if I said that, I might not be, I'd be very much hated um, for saying that because it would be considered unpatriotic. And I'm not saying that, by the way. Um, that's a whole other issue. Vines, like fig tree, or... Um, Grapevines, they normally take three or four years before they can actually produce fruit. But a fig tree produces fruit within the first year of its maturity. And so this has been, like, you might go to a fig vine tree, a vine, and you say that, and people are like, well, of course, it takes several years for it to produce fruit. But that's not true of a fig tree. Verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and a woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten herself up completely. So this is clear. Luke being a doctor, remember, sometimes he makes it clear that people are just sick because they're sick, and sometimes he makes it clear that they're sick because they have some kind of spiritual demon or some kind of evil or malice spirit in them affecting this. And it's interesting as you go through these, that the spirits are known for causing all kinds of physical problems. Everything from being possessed and having seizures to um, going crazy and insane mentally to actually being physically crippled and bent over in this kind of a way. 
When Jesus saw her, he called to her. When Jesus saw her, he called to her. He called her to him and said, Woman, you're freed from your infirmity. Then he placed his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. But the president of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the crowd, There are six days on which your work should be done. So come and be healed on those days and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from its stall and lead it to water? Then shouldn't this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen long years, be released from this imprisonment on the Sabbath day? Then he said to this, When he said this, all of his adversaries were humiliated, but the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. Once again, this is another story of their hypocrisy, where they have no problem taking care of a donkey who had broken a leg, previously mentioned by Jesus, or untying their donkey and leading it to water, now mentioned. But whenever Jesus gives people life and heals them on the Sabbath, which is a great testimony of finding rest in God. I mean, what better rest with God on the Sabbath than finding physical rest and healing from your ailments and your pain and your misery? And so Christ is doing this, and they have a problem with that. And it just shows you that even after all these years, they're so blind to what God is doing, and they're so disconnected from compassion. And one of the reasons for this repetition is repetition is usually used to emphasize that there's a point being made, that this is very important. And I know we're like, okay, we've seen a lot of healings. And yes, seeing healings is kind of cool. But hearing about the same things over and over again, you're like, okay, we get the point. Depending on your personality, how you're interpreting it. But by Jesus emphasizing this over and over and over again, not only is he, one, emphasizing that he's doing far greater miracles and healings than anybody before him, which points to his uniqueness. But two, he's emphasizing the fact that they're not learning. They're not growing. They're not responding. A year, two years ago, however long it's been, he was doing these things and they were accusing him of being a hypocrite or or violating, not being a hypocrite, but violating the Sabbath and all that kind of stuff. And they keep seeing this over and over again. And he keeps shaming them. And he keeps like refuting them and owning them and his lectures. And they're like, they even feel shame here. Like they realize, oh crap, he got us. But yet they still can't transfer it to the next thing. They can't allow it to sink into their hearts. And they can't, and you need to understand this. There are some people that can hear and hear and hear and see and see and see all the amazing things that God is doing and still be incredibly blind and deaf to what God is doing. It seems so obvious to you and I, but it's not to everybody. And it's not because they're not intelligent. It's just they're stubborn in what they want. And it doesn't mean that they'll never break, but it means that they're very resistant to these things. And this is what God is showing. And this is leading to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where where God is going to make the point that even in hell, these people still will not see and respond to the reality. But we'll talk about that when we get there. My guess is, based on what they do later, when they felt the shame that he owned them and his logic of you even take care of animals, but you don't want this to happen, that they weren't like feeling shame and like, oh, wow, that's so convicting. You're right. I'm wrong. 
I should change the way I do things because they don't change the way they do things. So most likely they feel this shame and then bitterness and anger is directed towards him for the one who caused their shame. And their mind, they're thinking he caused their shame, which just makes them even more committed to destroying him. And that's the, the responses that you can have here. And they're going to go that route based on how they act. Verse 18, Thus Jesus asks, What is the kingdom of God like? To what should I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the wild birds nested in its branches. So the mustard seed was one of the smallest seeds in all of Israel. And this is important for you to understand. There's two things that make this unique. It's one of the smallest seeds in all of Israel. It's smaller than your, your the, um, it can fit on the nail of your pinky and not even take up half your nail. And it grows into one of the largest trees. He's talking about ones that they would relate to, ones that they have experienced. So it has to be something that's small that grows into something big and something that they would be familiar with and not just a world tree. And this is a tree in Israel. And the idea is that the faith and the kingdom of God always start off very small. And then they grow big. And so this actually roots us back into Daniel. Because in Daniel, God talked about there would be a little rock that would come and destroy the giant statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But then it would grow into a large mountain that would fill the entire earth. But then he also used the tree analogy in Nebuchadnezzar's visions or dreams of a tree that is so big that it, it shelters birds and animals and provides fruit and life for everybody. And so the idea is that the kingdom of God starts small, but it grows big and covers the whole earth, but it also produces fruit and life for animals and humans alike. In contrast to the fig tree that is not bearing fruit. That is not bearing fruit. The kingdom of God is unlike the kingdom that the Pharisees have built. It starts off small, grows big, but it actually provides shelter and fruit. Again, he said, To what should I compare the kingdom of God? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of flour until all the dough had risen. Usually yeast is used to represent infiltrating and corrupting everything in a sin kind of a thing. And that's why you're not allowed to have yeast in your sacrifices. But in this case, Jesus flips it and says that the kingdom of God is like yeast. In the same way that it does infiltrate and, and take over everything, so will the kingdom of God one day. And it will start small. It'll start with these, these apostles and these disciples that are only in the couple thousands in Israel. After he ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes down upon them and they begin to witness. But then it grows across the entire earth and fills every nook and cranny and gets bigger and bigger. This is the kingdom of God until eventually Christ comes back a second time and establishes it completely on the earth. Verse 22. Then Jesus traveled throughout towns and villages, teaching and making his way toward Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? So he said to them, exert every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and start to knock on the door and beg, Lord, beg him, Lord, let us in. But he will not answer you. I don't know where you have come from. 
Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught us in in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. And then people will come from east and west and from north and south and take their places at the banquet table in the kingdom of God. But indeed, some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. Now, he really drives it home. This would hurt. Okay, This isn't just like, you're not producing fruit. I'm giving you another year to prove yourself. Be warned of those who are not following me. You hypocrites. This is, one day you're going to realize what you've done, and you're going to beg to get in, and you're not going to be able to. This hurts. This is harsh. He makes it very clear you are to exert every effort. Listen, sanctification does not happen on its own. Okay, I think we're all old enough to realize that. Sanctification does not happen on its own. And I'll just try better next time. Yeah, how's that been working out? Okay, now I'm not saying that you can't do that over time. I mean, non-Christians do get better and overcome addictions and that kind of stuff. But they don't just say, I'll try better next time. They also do a lot of work. Okay? Yes, there's a sense that salvation is not through works, but that should not negate the fact that knowing Christ and growing in Christ is a lot of work. It doesn't mean that that's the thing that saves you, but it is the thing that transforms you. And we cannot do it on our own. It's only when we partner with the Holy Spirit that he gives us the power to do it. But nowhere does Christ ever allow you to sit on the couch, watch Netflix, and eat bonbons, and just expect God to make you a better person. He expects you to be involved in it. And so it requires confessing things and bringing it out into the light. It requires setting up boundaries and fences to make sure that you don't cross lines into areas that you shouldn't. It involves confessing things to partners and accountability people who can keep you accountable. It requires swallowing your pride and humility and saying, will you call me out on this? It requires reading lots of books and getting skills and talents and principles of how to become a better father or mother or um, a better husband or wife or whatever. At the same time, that it requires a lot of hours on your knee crying out to God and asking for wisdom and, and transformation, dependency, and God saying, make every effort. Because this is a journey, and it's perseverance. And Paul compares the Christian life to running a race. And if you want to know what's involved, go watch cross-country practices and then look at their faces when they cross the finish line. That's what Paul is talking about. Make every effort. But we live in a fast food, microwave, remote control, instant oatmeal, lunchable meals kind of a culture. And we have been put at a disadvantage that we're living in the post-multiple industrial revolution rather than the colonial days of Little House in the Prairie. And this is not what we're used to. We're not used to this hard work. Some of us are, but as Americans as a whole, this is a new thing. And the reason is that 
Here's the contrast. In one sense, the kingdom of God, it grows into this large tree that fills all the earth and provides shelter for everyone. But in another sense, narrow is the path and narrow is the gate and very few enter into the kingdom of God. And this is not a contradiction because eventually the kingdom of God will fill the entire earth when Christ comes back a second time. And he will establish his kingdom and it will take over everything. And everything will become the Garden of Eden once again with no sin, no tree of knowledge of good and evil, and true trees of life on both sides of the river of life. However, not everyone will be entering into that. Not everybody will enter it. The first makes the point that the kingdom of God is big and fills the earth. The second makes the point of citizenship and how many people are actually going to be members of it. And unfortunately, the human nature is so stubborn and so autonomous that the vast majority of humans will not respond to Christ throughout human history. But one day they will realize it. The kingdom of God will be closed up and the second coming of Christ and the final judgment will be all done and sealed and many people will beg to get in. This makes it very clear there are no second chances after death. That there's a lot of people who teach that there's this idea of second and but there's also many passages that make it clear it's not and sometimes when the like the the, the greek orthodox tend to lean towards that there's a second chance after um the death that and and and, in, and one of my friends who's greek orthodox even says like and then of course everybody's going to accept god because how could you not stand in his presence and not accept him and so he has very much of this idea that everybody will get to heaven, um, but not because every path is legitimately leads you to God. It's just there's no way that anybody could stand the presence of God and walk away from him, right? Well, the demons, Satan. So, and they had far more knowledge than we do, and they walked away from it. But even if you have this close debate, which in my mind is not a close debate, but to not be totally arrogant, but the reality is, when you have these close debates, I'd rather err on the side of fewer consequences. If I'm erring that everybody gets another chance once they die, then maybe subconsciously, knowing human nature, I'll probably lax off on witnessing and discipleship and all that kind of stuff, thinking, well, in the end, it'll all work out, right? How could you not accept Christ standing in his full presence after death? But when you understand that the idea that there is no second chance then there's more of an idea like, this is it for my loved ones. This is it. And I very much believe that this passage is emphasizing that there is no second chance after death. But even on that sense, just why take the risk? Why take the risk? And that is not the picture that Christ ever paints in any parables, that there's any kind of a second chance. In fact, when he closes the door, he closes it, and people beg to get in. But don't see it this way, like, I want to convert. I want to be in a relationship with you. Because that's not what's going on. Some people beg to get in because they just don't want to suffer. They just don't want to suffer. They're not repentive. If you've ever had children, or you've ever been teacher of kids, you know that many times kids will be like, no, 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 please, I'll, I'll change, I'll change. I just don't want to be punished. It's like, was well, there true repentance and transformation in your heart? No, not that they say that, but you can see it, right? They're just begging because they don't want to be punished. They're just begging because they don't want to be punished. 
And this is what he's pointing to. You just don't want to be left out from the blessings. But never is there, I was wrong. I see who you are now. I want to know you. I want to be like you. You don't see that in the parable. It's just, please listen. Please listen. I don't want to be out here. Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the gnashing of teeth is the idea of grinding your teeth. And you grind your teeth because you're in great anxiety and great pain and great stress. And that's the idea of the afterlife. That there is not... Now notice he doesn't say because God is destroying you constantly and sticking you in the rear end with pitchforks like the Far Side comics. It's the idea that we will create our own hell. We've... Look. Study history. We've created our own hell on earth in multiple places. We don't need God to punish us, to create hell. And so the idea is we're going to inflict our own self-misery on ourselves and other people. Then, all the people that you least expected, they're going to come from all the directions. By now invoking the cardinal points of the compass, he's making it clear that you were supposed to go out into the earth. And now I'm going to go out and they're going to come in. The very people that you thought, you're, they're not worthy. We're chosen and they're not. They're going to be there. They're going to be there. Those are the ones who are going to be in the kingdom of God. T.W. Manson says this, The reply of Jesus begins by asserting that the way of salvation is a door which God opens and man enters. The entry cannot be made without God, and the gate of heaven opens only from the inside. But also man has to make his own way in. Once the door is open, and this is not easy, the entrance is narrow, and it is a case of struggling through rather than strolling in. If men fail to enter, it is not that God is unwilling to admit them, but that they will not enter on the, they will not enter on the only terms by which entrance is possible. Darrow Box says this, Jesus exhorts his audience to labor hard to enter through the narrow door. The idea is not to work one's way to God, but to labor hard at listening and responding to his message. The concept is very much like the passage in Proverbs that exhorts one to incline the ear to wisdom and pursue it like riches. God opens, but we must enter. God opens, but we must enter. Verse 31, at that time, some Pharisees came up and said to Jesus, get away from here because Herod wants to kill you. But he said to them, go and tell that fox, I am casting out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will complete my work. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the next day, because it is impossible that a prophet should be killed outside Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you will kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would have none of it. Look, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blesses the one who comes in the name of the Lord. For whatever reason, the Pharisees are warning him that Herod is trying to kill them. Which I don't think is true. Now, we don't get all the political intrigue of what's happening this time in the Gospels. The Gospel is not interested in politics and political intrigue and the, 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 house, the game of houses. But when you see Herod later at Jesus' crucifixion, he seems more like he's just curious. 
First, we learned earlier with John the baptizer, he's curious about this Jesus and wants to see him. And then when Jesus brought before him, he's like, ooh, I've been wanting to see who this guy is. Well, he must have not wanted to see it that bad because he never made the trip to see it. Not, Israel is the size of New Jersey. It would not take Herod very long to get to Jesus and figure out what's going on with him. So he just seems more curious. And yes, he kind of has fun sadistically torturing and mocking physically Jesus. But in the end, he's just, he has no interest in killing Jesus because he knows that's a political hot potato. Granted, it's a possibility that he really wants to kill Jesus now, but as Jesus' fame increases, he's like, I don't want to go there later. But it seems more likely the Pharisees are trying to ensnare Jesus or trying to distract him, like, oh, we're not trying to kill you. There it is. But Jesus calls him a fox. And I don't think that needs to be explained. Fox are clever and devious animals. But he says this, I have work to do. Look, I'm not going anywhere. If he wants to kill me, he can. I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. But then he shifts. Because right now it really feels like Christ is very harsh and very condemning to them. And he is. But at this moment, you also see the love. That for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son come out of Jesus. Because he says, oh, Israel, how I long to gather you together like a mother hen spreads out its wings and gathers them together to them in cheek, chicks, gathers them to the chicks to her and warms them and protects them. Now, I think this is a cool picture because this is an imagery that's been used all throughout the Bible. The very first thing that we see in Genesis is, in the beginning was God, and now the earth as we know it was formless and empty, and darkness hovered over the watery chaos. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, But the Spirit of God hovered, hovered over the waters, the surface of the waters. That word, tihum, for water, is a chaotic abyss. And then when the Holy Spirit hovers over it, it turns into the life-giving waters of springs and lakes and rivers. And the word that is used for hover is a mother bird hovering over her young and protecting them and providing them and bringing life. And so that's the first imagery that we get of the Holy Spirit, this chaotic, disordered, dark, formless, empty thing. And God puts his wings over it and provides life. And it brings life. Redemption. And then the prophets in Isaiah say that God lifts us up on his, like a mother bird lifts her child, um, chicks up on, not chicks, little birdies, up on its wings, providing protection and care and training him how to fly. And then now we see Jesus saying, oh, I am like a mother hen who would love to gather you together. And these are very feminine, very motherly, very nurturing images that Christ is presenting. And so at the same time, he's presenting this very authoritative, very, there are, no, there are lines clearly drawn. And if you're not on the right side, there is judgment. And there is a point of no return. But on the other side, he's also presenting a very compassionate, very nurturing, very heartfelt desire for his people to come to him. And you see a very balanced picture of who Christ and who, who God is. And the only thing that will allow you to enter into life 
is if you bless the one who came in the name of God, and that is Christ.